I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Psalm 126. Some time ago, earlier this year, we began looking at the Psalms of Ascent, which are those which begin in Psalm 120 and continue through Psalm 134, uh, looking at those during our Sundays when we have the Lord's Supper. And these are beautiful Psalms, deep reminders of the faith that we possess and that we share with God's people from every age. You might recall me saying that these Psalms were written, uh, or at least were used, by those going up to the feasts in Jerusalem to prepare their hearts as they journeyed on that way. These would have been uh, the psalms that were sung by Mary and Joseph and Jesus as they went up in his in his twelfth year, going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so it was and so it is that today we use these to mark our faith, to remind one another and to confess before the world what God has done. So Psalm 126, when the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Amen. Amen indeed. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Church of God beloved in Christ. Imagine, if you will, growing up, hearing stories about the wonders of worshiping with a vast multitude of God's people in the splendor of a beautiful temple that is, is filled with gold and with silver. Hearing the Word of God proclaimed refreshingly, boldly, Praying in the midst of a vast multitude. Imagine hearing that all your life, but never having experienced it personally. You long to desperately, but practically speaking, you know it's impossible. Because you live far from the location of the temple and the temple has been destroyed. Only a few of God's people live where you do and the rest of them are scattered. You long to, to gather them. You long to encourage them to join together and rebuild. But, but you know that the government prohibits it. And given the political situation, you can't bring yourself to hope that change is imminent. But then one day that change does come. In fact, it changes dramatically. Not only is the worship of which you dreamed suddenly permitted by the government, but in fact it is commanded by the government. The king urges not everyone to go back and rebuild their place. No, but only the people of your God, only the people of the true God 
are to go back and rebuild the temple and begin worshiping in the way that you have always dreamed. How amazing would that be to experience? It would just, it would take your breath away. It would be such a clear answer to prayer. There's no way that you could experience that and not boldly, continuously celebrate what God has done. That's exactly what God's people experienced when the Persian Empire came to power. Although they had been exiled from the land God promised them for a lifetime, suddenly they were allowed, they were even encouraged to go back. They were encouraged to rebuild the temple, to begin bringing offerings and prayers to the Lord. It was an answer to the prayers of a multitude. And the whole world was witness to it. How could they not celebrate the mercy that God had shown, the faithfulness that He had bestowed upon them? And brothers and sisters, how can we fail to do likewise? After all, we too have been restored from exile. The exile of having no hope and being without God in the world, as Ephesians 2. Yet God rescued us from that hopeless situation, restored us to His favor, adopted us as His beloved children, and called us to become members of the family of God. Just as truly as Israel of old, we have been restored to God and to His blessings. And therefore the response of Israel that is described in Psalm 126 ought to inform and inspire us as we consider our own situation, our own mercies. And that's what Psalm 126 shows us. Here we see how God's people celebrate their restoration to God's favor. God's people celebrate the restoration of God's favor. And we see that celebration begin and and really largely comprise... Our first point, which shows God's people delighting in God's redemptive mercy. But first, a quick history lesson. Before we see how they were delighting in God's redemptive mercy, we need to see what they come out of. It started with Assyria taking captive the northern tribes. Everything but Judea, basically, where Jerusalem was. That happened starting in... in, uh, 732 B.C. and continuing to about 669 B.C. Now that should have served as a warning to the remaining Israelites in Judea. That God will not overlook rebellion. That God will not overlook their worship of false gods and their neglect of His worship. It should have served as a warning, but it did not. And so, in 609 B.C., the southern kingdom began to be exiled, this time not by Assyria, but by Babylon, which had had really overshadowed Assyria as a world power. So starting in 609, the exile of Judea began. It concluded in 586 B.C. with the destruction of Jerusalem. And so God's people were scattered throughout the empire of Babylon, the modern Middle East. But God promised their offspring would return. He told them by the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the ends of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the woman with child and the one who labors with child together. 
A great throng shall return there. They shall come with weeping and with supplications I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the river of waters in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the isles afar off and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. That was his promise to his people. In fact, he even said in Isaiah 44, he he says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall perform all my pleasure. Saying to Jerusalem, you shall be rebuilt and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Now, that was God's promise and God is always faithful to his promise. And so in 539 B.C., The empire of Persia and Media overthrew the empire of Babylon. And their king, Cyrus, whom Isaiah had foretold, almost immediately upon rising to the throne, issued a decree that was unprecedented. It was a decree that the people of Israel should return to the ruins of Jerusalem and rebuild. That they should erect their temple, that they should... Begin worshipping freely, bringing offerings for the king and for his kingdom. In fact, he even had his servants find and restore to the people the basins, platters, knives, and other effects of the temple made out of gold and silver, which Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had stolen away. God's punishment was definitively lifted. The people were being restored. And when those promises were suddenly fulfilled... The psalmist says, we were like those who dream. It was an event for which they had been hoping, praying, longing, literally for a lifetime. 609, when the exile of Jerusalem began, 70 years had passed before Cyrus came to power. 47 years since the destruction of Jerusalem. They had hoped, they had prayed, they had fasted, they had repented in sackcloth and ashes. But given the political climate of the Babylonian Empire, they knew that it was, humanly speaking, impossible. But then suddenly, Babylon is overthrown. God does what He has promised. And they stood in awe. Like the disciples, hearing Mary Magdalene testify that Jesus had risen. They stood there hearing the words, but not knowing how to process the truth. Yet they couldn't deny the truth. And so our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. See, they were powerless to remain silent. (coughs) They had to tell others what a wonderful gift they had been given. They had to praise God for the mercy He had shown, the prayers He had answered. So they worshipped. They sang. They confessed. They rejoiced with all that was in them. Again, it was exactly what God said that His people would do. Back in Jeremiah 31, when He had foretold that He would deliver them, He then said, They shall come and sing in the height of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord. Their souls shall be like a well-watered garden. They shall not sorrow any more at all. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old together. For I will turn their mourning to joy will comfort them and make them rejoice rather than sorrow. What a testimony that was. 
God promised that His people would come back, that they would rejoice, that they would worship in the place where, from which they had been cast out. And that's exactly what happened. Precisely as God foretold, that's exactly what His people did. And they did so with hearts overflowing and abounding with thankfulness, with gratitude to God. In fact, even the pagan nations remarked on what God had done. They said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Listen, none of this happened in a vacuum. When the king of a superpower drastically changes the rules about those who have been conquered. When he takes a captive people and grants them freedom to be restored. The people of the empire take notice of such a drastic change of policy. And so the people of Persia took note. They expressed wonder at what God had done. They remarked to one another about how amazing must be this God whom these people serve. Again, this was foretold by Isaiah, by Jeremiah. But what an amazing fulfillment to see the people beyond the Israelites remarking about how great our God is. Pardon me. (coughs) And therefore hearing the people of the nations, the people of Israel remarked anew, the Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. It's a statement of celebration. God has shown Himself to be faithful to His promises. God has shown Himself to be more mighty than the people of the nations around. And so they confess it. They sing it. They worship in the eyes of the world. Now the question is, what does that have to do with us today, with the church? Well, folks, as I hinted at before, we too... We're exiles. We were in captivity. Not in a geopolitical sense, but we were captives of our sin, of our misery. We were prisoners of Satan. That's how we all were born. And and all who are elect and yet remain outside of the church, outside of faith, they remain in exile. They are, as it were, out (coughs) in the midst of Babylon. And until they come to faith in Christ, until they are ushered into the flock among the people of God, they remain in exile. But when the Lord works in their heart, when the Lord draws them to Christ and allows them to understand both their misery and the gospel that delivers them, He restores them. He restores us from exile. And that's what happened to us. We have been drawn out from the common mass of mankind and drawn in to the new Jerusalem where God's Word is heard, where His worship is brought with great joy and with acceptability in His sight. We have been restored to God completely. And given the promise of a a complete restoration, a complete renewal that shall never end. How can we be silent? How can we be anything less than filled with joy? Of course, the world wants to keep us silent. That's why they tell us it's okay to have faith. It's okay to have religion. (coughs) But keep it to yourself. 
It doesn't belong in the public square. It doesn't belong in the workplace. And we ourselves are tempted to take up that thought, aren't we? Tell me about my comfort. Tell me about the hope that I have of the future. Let's talk about heaven, but, but let's not talk about all this confessing stuff. Let's not talk about all this witnessing stuff. Let's not... That's uncomfortable. That makes my neighbor uncomfortable. I don't want to do that. But brothers and sisters, if we realize the exile from which we have been brought back, if we realize the depth and the breadth of the love of God that's been shown to us, if we see, look at the Lord's table. Look at what it cost God to bring us back. God sending His own beloved Son to suffer the pains of hell for us. The, the physical torment of the cross was as nothing in comparison with the sun being darkened for three hours, with God turning His back, as it were, on His own Son. That's a mystery, how that could even happen. And yet, Jesus endured it so that we would never have to experience that darkness. So that we would never have to experience again that exile from the presence of God. And so deep and unthinkable was that exile. That it wrung from Jesus' lips the cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what He did to restore us. To bring us back. And though the world often seeks to silence us, they also take notice. They take notice when we act like the Lord, when we forgive freely, when we are filled with praise of God, when we notice how everything in life works together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. They notice. They might not always love it, but they recognize it. And so, brothers and sisters, we, having been delivered in such an amazing way, we have the calling to do what Israel did, to proclaim the Lord has done great things for us and we are glad to allow ourselves to be filled with joy, to remark to others about how great is our God. Brothers and sisters, certainly this is something that should fill our Lord's day. Ah, it's so <coughs> tempting to allow ourselves to get worked up about little things as we prepare for worship, right? Or to allow ourselves to get distracted by lesser things. So that we're tempted to either come to church distracted and uh, unhappy. Or to not come at all. You know, I think I'm just going to stay home tonight. I think I'm just going to relax. I'm going to rest. Or, you know, this time with friends or this time with family is just so enjoyable. It won't matter if I only go to church once, even though the elders have called me twice. It won't matter if I pass up that opportunity to praise God for all He's done. But it does matter. Not because only those go to heaven who go to church twice a week. Not at all. No. But because we're passing up an opportunity to give God praise. And to gather with His people. To gather with the exiles who've been restored. And to tell the world and to remind each other what an amazing gift He's given us. And we're showing our children that it's not that big a deal. But it is. It's the biggest deal that there ever could be. To have been restored from the exile and brought back among the people of God. To hear His Word. 
and to behold the love of God in Christ. <clears throat> there is nothing greater that we could do, brothers and sisters. There is no greater joy that should fill our hearts. And yes, I know that sometimes it doesn't fill our hearts. So then we need to pray and we need to encourage each other. We need to ask God to fill us with that joy because He delights to answer that prayer. But woe to us if we let our tongues fall silent. Woe to us if we let the laughter evaporate from our tongues. We must not. For God has restored us to the land of the living, to hope eternal, and to the confidence that all that befalls you, He will turn to your good. Therefore, by His power within you, Delight, brothers and sisters, in God's redemptive mercy. <clears throat> and understand, there's even more to which we're called. Israel, you see, did not stop with rejoicing, even though they had been restored. Because they recognized that though they had been restored, they weren't fully restored yet. They were back in the land of Israel, but some of God's people weren't. And even though they were back, they were physically restored. They weren't yet fully spiritually restored. And so even amidst their celebrating, God's people were desiring God's redemptive fullness. And that's our second point. The heart of this section is the prayer of verse 4. Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Again, this is a plea for full restoration, that God would, would work in the hearts of those who had not yet been restored. Some of them because of poverty. They didn't feel they had the money to go back. Others because of attachments to the world. They were too rooted in the land to which they had been exiled. Or too rooted to the things of the broader empire. So they're praying that God would work in their hearts and in their situations to draw back their countrymen. But also they were praying. Work in our hearts, Lord. Because the work to which they were called was great. Physically, they had to rebuild Jerusalem. They had to rebuild the temple. Plus, they had to re rebuild a land that had been lying vacant, essentially, for... Fifty, and in many cases, seventy years. They needed God's strength to do that. But more than that, they needed God's joy. They needed God's encouragement to live and act and confess as He would have them do. Because <coughs> just as it is today, so it was then, the people of the world wanted them to shut up, to stop talking about God, to just blend in with the people around them. And that was a temptation because those people weren't very gentle about their encouragements. So they were praying, God, restore us. Restore us as the streams in the south. The word translated the south is the Negev. That was a region to the south of Judea. It was a rugged region where very little grew. There was a lot of hills and rocks, not very much soil, and very, very little precipitation. Well, throughout the Negev, there are these dry stream beds that they call wadis. If you don't know what you're looking for, they just kind of look like a valley. But if you notice them, those valleys have a particular shape, and they have the look of a place where rushing water has recently passed. And it has. 
Because at least once a year, the rain falls heavy and hard and fast. And where that rain falls, it fills up the wadis that run from there. And it takes those, they take that water and they spread it. The wadis have crevices that lead down to springs. And it fills those springs so, so that for a brief time water is available from them. And it spreads the water far from where the rain was. And everywhere that that water is spread by those wadis and they run hard and fast and deep. Just for a brief time, but they scatter that water. And wherever that water is scattered, the land suddenly blooms. This arid wasteland becomes lush. And that's what God's people are praying. They are seeking refreshing by the Holy Spirit. They've been living in a spiritual desert. No temple worship because the temple was destroyed. Surrounded by people who hate God and want them to be silent about God. Taught about God's Word, but but the teaching was sporadic and often not very good. As a result, they had become discouraged and, and spiritually weak. They were given to doubt and fear and discouragement. They had given over their lives to sin and compromise. And so God's servant says, restore us, water your people like you water the Negev, that we might be, that we might be led to flourish. He wants God to fill them with the Holy Spirit, that those who were still far off might be urged to come back, and that those who were there might take up their task of worshiping God, of of serving Him, and, and doing so wholeheartedly, with joy, with eagerness. How does that look among us? Folks, this, this is to be our prayer for God to continue restoring those who are in exile, first of all, because there are multitudes in our world today who remain in exile, the, the elect who have not yet been called, God's chosen people who have not yet heard the gospel and come to faith, and even, even some who have heard, but they've drifted because the seed has not really taken root we, we need to be praying. We must be praying that God would work in the hearts of those who are His who have not yet come. That He might draw those in from the exile. That the full number of God's people might fill His church and grow His kingdom. That the day of Christ's return might speed to us. <coughs> I apologize for the tickle in my throat. That's <coughs> I've been struggling with that lately. Um... This is a plea for God to restore those who are in exile, but also to restore those who've been brought back. Us. Because it is so easy. As we live and work among those who are not believers. And as we have in ourselves that base nature, that old man, that urges us to take the easy path. The path of least resistance. The path that won't embarrass us by talking about things that might make people uncomfortable. Or that, that won't require all the work of getting to know people and showing love to them and explaining to them our faith. That's hard work. And it's much easier to just blend in. To say nothing. 
And we will unless God through the Holy Spirit is working in us to build our faith and to fill us with joy everlasting. And so we're praying for that. We're praying that He would cause us to overflow with gratitude to Him so that we cannot be silent. We're praying that He would give us a spiritual maturity so that we would encourage one another and build each other up and draw one another to do what the Lord calls us to do, to be what the Lord calls us to be. And we must pray with confidence that God will hear and will answer. Look at the last two verses of our text. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. You see the the image there, right? We have a farmer sowing the seed old school. He's raked to the ground. He goes out with a bag of seed and he's sowing it across the field. And he's weeping. Why is he weeping? Maybe he's weeping at the amount of work and the scarcity of those to do it. Maybe he's weeping at the thought of the great investment that that seed represents, the cost with which it has come. Or maybe maybe his family is hungry. And this is some of the last food in the house. But rather than grind it into flour to make bread, he's sowing it in hope of a future harvest. He's weeping as he works. But then the time comes for the harvest. And that seed that he has sown with tears, he now looks upon the field that is so filled with abundance. He sees the food that will last for the remainder of the year and beyond. He sees that his investment has more than paid off. And so with laughter and with joy, he reaps the harvest. Brothers and sisters, this is an image of the Christian life. Farming, as many of our folks know, is inherently a discipline of faith. Every year, many of you dump thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars worth of seed in the ground and there's not a thing you can do to ensure a good crop. I mean, you can, you can fertilize, you can irrigate, you can spray, you can do all kinds of stuff, but you can't make one of those seeds germinate. You can't ensure that the hail will miss your field. You can't keep the straight line winds at bay, nor can you deal with the diseases and the varmints that can easily ruin a crop. You can't do it. All you can do is pray. That God will bring the harvest. And when that harvest comes, how can you look at that and say anything other than look at how great our God is? Well, brothers and sisters, that is the Christian life. There is nothing any one of us can do to make our faith blossom and grow the way it ought to. Oh, there are spiritual disciplines that we should engage in just as the farmer ought to be out there spraying for weeds or applying his... Uh, fertilizer. But we can't make it happen. We can't make it effective. Only God can. And by the same token, we can't work in the hearts of those who have yet to be drawn. Sometimes we have a, a young person who's drifting from the faith. They're going down the wrong path. And we can say all the right words. We can tell them exactly what they need to hear, but we can't. Not one of us can change their hearts. Not parents, not grandparents, not siblings, not elders, not anybody. Only God can. That doesn't mean we should be silent. But it does mean we must rely on God to do what God alone can do. 
And this psalm reminds us we can. We can be confident in Him that He will listen to our prayer, that He will heed our desire, our longing. And the Lord's Supper reminds us that that's why Jesus came, to ensure that that prayer would be heard. In John 6, Jesus says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And what is that will? That of all He has given me, I should lose nothing, but raise it up at the last day. Jesus came to bring every last one of His people completely to the Father. He rescues us from our blindness. He inserts faith into our hearts. He fills us by the Holy Spirit through whom He renews us in His image. That's why He came. That's what He accomplished in His life, in His death on the cross, and through His resurrection. Look at the sacrament before you. That's your assurance that Jesus completed the work. Again, in John 6, he says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And then he says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. But whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. He's not talking about bread and wine. He's talking about the eating and the drinking that we do by faith. When we look to Jesus and we trust Him as our Savior. We believe that through Him we are restored from the exile. We trust that by all that He has done, we have been adopted by God the Father. And made His children forever. And not us alone. Also all of those whom God has ordained to be His. All of those whom He has set apart as His elect. And whom He assuredly will call. And therefore knowing that Jesus has secured the answer to our prayer. Let us pray all the more earnestly. Bring back our captivity, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. Let us pray that God would restore every one of those who are His, our children, our grandchildren, our neighbor down the street. And let us pray that He would complete the work that He has begun in us. That though we struggle today with sin, soon we will see that struggle end. That though we see today how weak we are soon, we will see the power of God at work in us. And then let us give Him the praise. Let us give Him the glory, knowing that as surely as Jesus has done what He did, He will answer the prayer we have prayed. Brothers and sisters, God's people celebrate and must celebrate their restoration to God's favor in Christ. Let us do so with joy. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, we thank You and we praise You For giving us the assurance that not only have we been restored, but that restoration shall be completed. And not only have you drawn us, but you will draw every one of those whom you have set apart for yourself. Use us to that end. And lead us, Lord, to devote our all to giving you the glory that you deserve. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.